0: This is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. I am Kelly Downing, your host for the podcast. Glad to have you here and excited to dive in to this week's episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Before we get into that, though, a quick reminder that you can join the Survivor Sanctuary conversation on our Facebook page. Go to facebook.com slash Survivor Sanctuary. In the search bar on Facebook, enter Survivor Sanctuary. You will find the podcast page and request to join. There is a question that you have to answer if you want to join. It is a very, very simple question, and that is, What is the main topic of conversation on Survivor Sanctuary? I mean, a two-word response. Most of y'all know what we talk about here on Survivor Sanctuary, uh, but some people don't. And it's been really interesting. I was getting quite a few requests to join, like 18 at a time. And I'm thinking, wow, so many people. So I decided to add some security questions, you know, just to weed out anybody who might not be there for the right reason. And now when some people are joining Survivor Sanctuary on Facebook, uh, they answer the question, what is the main topic of conversation on Survivor Sanctuary? And I'm getting a lot of responses, the animals. And apparently there is some other group out there called maybe Survivor Sanctuary, maybe something close to that, that's all about saving animals. And I love animals, they're awesome, but that's not what this podcast is about. So in any case, if you wanna join Just search us on Facebook, answer that security question if you're listening to Survivor Sanctuary right now. I think you could probably tell me in two words what the main topic of conversation is on this podcast, but join us. We would love to have you as part of the conversation. You know, a lot of times what gets talked about on Survivor Sanctuary, the Facebook group, is what we end up talking about here On episodes of the podcast and I love that I love that people are sharing their concerns they're sharing some of their personal victories and the ups and downs of surviving sexual abuse and we can talk about that here on the podcast and then you can go to the page and continue the conversation or talk about anything you'd like there as well and you got a big group of survivors and survivor advocates who are going to be there cheering you on and giving great advice and just listening which is super important So, for episode 41 of the podcast, it actually does come from a conversation on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And I won't mention the survivor by name because I want to, you know, to respect people's privacy. But people in the group uh, were able to read when she posted that she actually confronted the person who had sexually abused her. She said that it took her 34 years to do it, but she had done it. And she even posted some screenshots for us of a message that she sent to this person and just basically telling him, hey, I remember, don't think I forgot what you did to me when I was eight years old. And uh, she was able to confront the person who had sexually abused her years ago. And that kind of got a little conversation sparked when somebody asked, like, whoa, that's amazing, how did it feel? And it kind of brought me back to the time when I, I won't say I confronted my abuser directly, but uh, indirectly, in any case, I confronted him when I let his church leadership know that he had abused me as a child and that I was concerned he was abusing other people. So today I want to talk about confronting our abusers, and uh, this is going to be like a personal choice for everybody. Not everyone wants to go out and confront the person who abused them. In fact, a lot of people would rather do anything but that, and I know for a long time I definitely wanted to have nothing to do with the person who abused me, but for many survivors, this is something that happens years after the fact, and it's just the way that it works with survivors many of us wait years and years even decades and decades to come forward for me it was nearly thirty years for this person who posted in the survivor sanctuary facebook group about confronting her abuser it had taken her thirty four years in order to be able to do that and to be at a place where she felt like she could confront him so that's just the way that it is i gave you two examples but it's pretty common knowledge that many survivors of sexual abuse wait a long time to come forward there's just a lot of stuff There's a lot of shame we deal with. There's a lot of guilt that we deal with. There are just some like really gross feelings that for me, that was one of the biggest things. I didn't want to think about it. I just didn't want to even like dwell on it long enough to think about whether or not I needed to confront anybody. But I think it's a little bit different for each and every survivor uh, where they're at as far as deciding, hey, I want to come forward. I want to talk about the fact that I was abused, I want to go public with this. For some people, that is the case. They will really go public with their story. And for others, it may just be telling close family, close friends. Um, but there will come a point for many survivors when you consider confronting the person that abused you. And when I first began this like journey of healing from sexual abuse, and I started going to therapy, and I started reading books, and I just started... like. Realizing for the first time, oh my goodness, I was a victim of childhood sexual abuse, and it's greatly affected me. When all that started, um, I spoke with several different people, just different people in the field of sexual abuse. There was one woman who was a sexual abuse survivor herself, and she was also a therapist. And uh, a coworker of mine actually put me in contact with her, and he said, "Listen, this might be a person that you know you can talk to who might give you some really good ideas about." You know, therapy or different ways to cope or what you're, you know, you're going through this whole process because I was actually going through the process that time of outing my abuser because I was concerned that he was abusing other girls. So when I spoke to this therapist, she was like it kind of, I don't, dumbfounded may not be the word, but she was like, wow, she said, wow, quite a few times. And she said, you're in a really unique position because for many of us, and she was talking about survivors of sexual abuse. She said, for many of us, we don't have the opportunity to confront our abuser because when you wait, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years to be able to come forward and talk about your abuse, a lot of times the person who abused you is no longer with us or maybe that's the reason that a survivor could decide to come forward. They didn't feel like it was okay to do it while their abuser was still alive. And so once that person passed away, they were finally able to kind of unpack what happened to them and say it out loud and maybe tell people but for whatever reason that seems to be the case for some survivors of sexual abuse you get to the point in your healing journey where you're ready to confront what happened to you, you're ready to say it out loud, and the person who abused you may not even be alive any longer. So I don't wanna say it was a privilege for me because that sounds a little weird. (laughs) I don't consider many aspects of sexual abuse a privilege, but it is not something that every single survivor of sexual abuse can say that, oh, I have the capability of confronting my abuser. Because if you were abused as a small child and you know, 35 years later you come forward, there's a chance that you may not be able to confront your abuser any longer. And I am in a unique position here to sort of see it from a couple of different angles. I know what it feels like to not be able to confront my sexual abuser, and I also know what it feels like to be able to confront my sexual abuser. And the reason is because before I started the healing process from sexual abuse, and maybe my feelings would have changed because At this point, I wasn't even really acknowledging that I had been sexually abused. Like it was something that I would say he messed with me. That was the only thing that I would ever say. I told very few people and I just, it was something I kept to myself. And even to myself, I would just say he messed with me. I did not want to use the words molested or sexual abuse or anything like that. But before I went into this whole process of admitting that I was abused and working through it, I was actually told rather abruptly one night in my parents' kitchen that my abuser had died, so it was a miscommunication. Uh, one of my parents said, "Oh, Jerry passed away, and I remember I just froze like I was opening up their refrigerator and I just froze in that kitchen and i, I the feelings that flooded me I don't think I could identify them right now, like to tell you exactly the way that I felt. It was a feeling of maybe a little bit of relief and also a feeling of like regret, like he got away with what he did to me and there are no consequences for him. You know, that was a big one. I don't remember everything that flashed through my mind at that point, but I just remember saying good riddance. Like I said that out loud, neither of my parents questioned what I meant by it and I hadn't told them anything about the abuse at that point. So I don't know if they thought it was weird that that's what I said. But I actually believed for several years that the man who had abused me was dead. And so I kind of know that feeling of like, oh, well, I never get to confront him. I never get to say, like, you did this to me, and I remember what you did. I never got to confront him in any way. And so I had that experience. Years later, I'm scrolling through Facebook, and this was one of the reasons that I began revisiting the fact that I had been sexually abused Um, I I found pictures of him. I came across them, and and I asked my dad, I'm like, hey, remember that one time when you said he was dead? Like, I'm seeing his pictures all over Facebook, and my dad said, well, maybe I was mistaken. He was, there's a language barrier. His sister had posted that one of her brothers had passed away, and what my dad didn't realize is she had quite a few brothers, and the one that passed away was not the person who had abused me. So, for years, I walked around thinking that I was sexually abused, and that this person was dead. And part of, I felt like different things. Part of me felt cheated that, you know, he basically got to do what he did to me and got away with it. But I will say that because I hadn't really started healing from sexual abuse, because I hadn't even really admitted the depth, uh, the gravity of what he had done to me, I don't know that the feeling of being cheated was a super strong feeling because I was still kind of in denial about what he had done to me. But I do remember feeling that twinge of like that cheated feeling. I also felt a little bit like, okay, he messed with me. Now he's dead. Vindication at its finest. Like part of me was like, God struck him down because of what he did to me when I was a kid. So very conflicted feelings. Uh, But fast forward a few years when I realized not only is he not dead, but he's alive and well, married with two kids, and is still in Christian church ministry leadership and is standing behind a pulpit every Sunday and reading scripture and you know doing puppet shows for children and all this stuff. So I've kind of experienced it both ways. The way of my abuser is gone and I never get to confront him, and then later to find out, oh, just kidding, he's not gone, and actually being able to go through the process of being able to confront him. If we're getting technical about it, I actually never did confront my abuser personally. I don't know if that's something that I'm ever going to do because I think that for me, um, what was really, really important to me was letting the church he was ministering in know what he had done because as far as I'm concerned, he knows what he did. The important thing was keeping him from doing it to anybody else. And after perusing quite a few pictures on Facebook and seeing the way that he interacted with young children, including his own daughter, like... I just had the creepiest feeling on earth and and I just had that feeling of that intuitive feeling like I know that this man has abused other people. I don't walk around thinking that every single person is a sexual abuser, but I'm getting to the point where when I have that intuitive feeling. I tend to believe it because too many times now it has actually come to pass that I have a feeling about somebody and then we find out something later and it's like, okay, your feelings were completely straight, dead on right. This person was sexually abusing children and you need to trust that part of your intuition when you notice these off behaviors of some people. So because I had this feeling that my abuser was probably still molesting children. Um, It was very, very important for me to come forward. I won't say that I actually confronted him because the letter that I sent, the emails that I sent, all of them were addressed to church leadership and not to him. I never said anything to him directly, and I'm not sure that I ever want to. And well, reasons for that will unfold as we continue to talk in this episode of Survivor Sanctuary because it's all about um, maybe managing our expectations when it comes to confronting our abuser. Because I don't think that there is any way on earth, and and I could be wrong, I will say this just caveat here. I am one survivor of sexual abuse, one. And my experience is my experience. And while survivors do share a lot of commonalities, like there are things that we can relate to from each other's stories, and there may be many similarities, all of us are different. We've all got different personalities. We all have different upbringings. Not every single one of us is going to be like, oh yeah, that's exactly how I feel about every single thing is the exact way you feel about it. It's just, that's not how it works. We're all individuals. So I don't want you to think for a second that I'm telling you right now that, uh, you know, if I describe something and that's not exactly how you feel that you're doing something wrong as a survivor, because we're all different. But I will say that I think that it's very possible for nearly every single survivor of sexual abuse to relate to this. And that is... It is never going to feel exactly the way that you want it to feel to confront your abuser. On the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group, when somebody asked um, the woman who had confronted her abuser after 34 years, like, how did it feel? And she said something like, well, bittersweet, because she was very angry that he didn't respond. Like, she sent him these messages, and he took the coward's way out and did not respond to them. And that's one of the things that I want to bring to your attention if you're thinking about, you know, maybe at some point in the future confronting the person who abused you there's a good chance they're not gonna respond at all. Like if you're able to stop them in the streets, like I've seen this done before, where people actually like with a video camera go find their abuser walking down the streets of like New York City, and they just confront them head on, camera in their face, there's nowhere for them to hide. Maybe then they have to respond, but Any of the other methods that you use to try to contact the person who abused you, if it's by letter, if it's by email, if it's by text message, if it's by phone, there are ways for this person to avoid you and to avoid the shame of what they've done to you and to avoid your anger. Because honestly, abusers would prefer if nobody ever would bring up what they did so they could keep doing it in secret and never have to think about the fact that they could be caught or that what they're doing is harming people. Because honestly, I feel like for most abusers, the majority of them, they don't care that what they've done has harmed people because it's more important to them to fulfill that lust for power and that lust for whatever it is when they target young children Um, That's more important, that fix is more important to them than anything that their victim may feel. And this is a part of confronting our abusers that might be a little bit difficult to swallow. Um, When you confront your abuser, and actually just your abuser in general, it is never about how you feel. It was never about it from the very beginning. If the person who abused you thought for a second, like if he or she stopped to think for a second, what are my actions going to do? to this person? How is it going to affect this person for the remainder of their lives? If they were the kind of person that was gonna sit and think about that, you probably never would have been abused in the first place. So while the abuse is usually not about you, like we're taught like, oh, there was something in you that made you an easy target for abuse. And while, yeah, people can be taken advantage of because of various things, but the reason that people abuse is because they're abusive. I mean, that's it. So while abuse feels deeply personal to us, it feels like it's all about us because that's what our brains conspire to tell us from the nanosecond that we're abused. It's because of you. It's your fault. It's because you did X, Y, Z. You asked for it. You didn't fight hard enough. There's something wrong with you that made you a target. You know, we really internalize it and our brains make it all about us. And part of that is probably because that gives us more of a sense of power than just admitting that we were taken advantage of. And that's, that's probably an episode for another day, but it's a message that we kind of internalize. This is about me. There was something wrong with me. There's some fatal flaw in me. There is something so wrong with me that people have decided that they want to use me as a target for abuse. And the reality is that it's really not about us. It's always about our abuser. It's about their issue, It's about their desires. It's about what they want to do and what they want to get away with. And sexual predators of children are not sitting down and thinking what the lifelong consequences of their behavior will be on these children. They're thinking of themselves. So it's not about us. And that really sucks. I know that like saying that it seems kind of harsh just coming out of my own mouth that it's not about us because it feels so deeply personal and it affects us in such a deep way that to be able to just flippantly say, you know, me abusing you was never about you. I, I mean it's it's almost insulting in a sense because of just how it feels to us, how being sexually abused by someone, being used by somebody in that way, our lives being affected for so long and in so many ways. That so many people have difficulty fathoming, like it just seems crazy to say that it's not about us. But I think that if you are trying to make that decision to confront your abuser, that's one thing that you need to keep in the forefront of your mind to avoid being devastated when they don't say or do or act the way that you feel like they should because you're doing this huge thing by confronting them with the biggest, probably most awful thing that's ever happened to you. It is probably never going to feel the way that you want it to feel to confront your abuser. And I think that that is in large part because him or her abusing you was never about you. It was always about them. Having said that, though, I will come to my next point, and that is deciding whether or not after five years or 25 years that you want to confront your abuser, if you hinge all of your hopes on the potential response from your abuser, if you hinge any of your hopes on that, I think that you're gonna be disappointed. And so when it comes to managing expectations and you know, deciding I'm gonna confront this person who's wrecked my life or done X, Y, Z to me, it's a part of my healing or whatever, when you make that decision, it has to be for you and it has to be about you. I've mentioned that I didn't confront my abuser head on. Like I didn't just write him a letter. And because honestly, I don't know how I knew, but I knew that no matter what response he would give me, it was not going to be the response that I wanted to hear. I don't even know, sitting here talking to you, I don't know that there's any response that I would want to hear from that man. He will never say what I want him to say. He will never act the way that I want him to act. And I feel like any expectation that I would have for confronting him and him responding back to me. Any expectation, I, th- I think I would just be disappointed. And so that's something to keep in mind and it's why I say that if you decide that you wanna confront your abuser, it's gotta be for you and it's gotta be about you. When I came forward, I wanted to stop him from abusing other people. That was the bottom line. I didn't want an apology. I didn't want anything from this guy. I did not ever want to talk to him because the thought even it just disgusted me. I did not want to have anything to do with him. I just knew based on behaviors that I was seeing even just from social media, I knew that he had never stopped abusing little girls. And I knew that if I didn't do something that, you know, I had an opportunity to stop him, and I don't want you to feel guilty if you have not like outed your abuser and Like, that's not a guilt that you should carry. You're not responsible for what your abuser did. All I can tell you is that for me personally, I could not handle the thought that I knew he was a sexual abuser and I hadn't said anything. You know, um, I didn't blame myself for anything he had done over the years because I was so oblivious to what was even happening in my own life or to the fact that I was even sexually abused. Like I was in La La Land somewhere and I don't take any responsibility. I don't like beat myself up over the fact that, oh, if I had just said something when I was six, you know, he would have stopped this because I don't think that's true either. But I knew that once I started healing and once I started dealing with what happened to me and once I realized that this man had never stopped abusing, I knew that I couldn't not say anything. So for me that was a very strong feeling and my purpose in coming forward was, hey, I don't want anybody else to feel the way that I feel. I don't want anybody else to have to deal with these issues in life that I have to deal with from having been sexually abused. Like when I thought of little girls, like I remembered the way that I felt when I was six and I didn't want that to keep happening. And so that's why I made the decision to come forward to the leadership of his church and the mission board that sent missionaries to his church, because I thought these people can stop him. And I actually did get a response once I confronted my abuser and to say that it was disappointing is like just an understatement, but I don't have any other words for it except to say that it was super disappointing. First, I was kind of angry because I didn't want him to have a voice. You know, I think it was that he had had so much power over my life for so many years that I just wanted to confront the issue and I wanted people to stop him without me ever having to talk to him. I didn't want to hear anything that he had to say because I I guess I kind of knew deep down that it was always going to come up short and I didn't want to hear any excuses. So. The mission board decided that as part of his conditions for repentance, and we've gone over this before in Survivor Sanctuary episodes, where if you're truly repentant, nobody needs to give you conditions for your repentance. Like, you give them to yourself, and you fix stuff. You know, if you're truly repentant, you fix stuff. I think I heard somebody say once, um, in response to one of my episodes, I had said something like, you know, if somebody's repentant, why didn't they ever come forward and say that they had done these things wrong? And I think the response was, well... Nobody ever just tells people stuff that they did that was wrong. Like, that's normal that we don't come forward. But honestly, I think of it this way. If you murdered somebody and you got away with it and it was eating away with you, you know, going through your whole life, it was eating away at you and eating away at you. Like, you know what? The only way that you display true repentance in that situation, true repentance and sorrow for what you've done, is to turn yourself in. You know? And if it's not to the authorities, it's at least to the family of the person that you hurt, you know? So the way that I view it is... No, maybe a sexual abuser is not gonna stand up in front of a church and be like, hey, I less kids. But like to not even attempt to find your victims and make things right or to say, I'm sorry for what I did. If you're truly repentant to me, it seems like some sort of confession is going to be a part of that repentance if it's genuine. And that's confession that nobody should have to force on you. Like a mission board didn't have to say, here's a list of the conditions for your repentance. But that's exactly what they did to the man who abused me. They said, here are the conditions. You want to be truly repentant? Here's a a 10 step guide for what you have to do. And one of those things was to write me a letter of apology. Can I just tell you, when I was a kid and me and my brother would fight, and one of my brothers, we were super close in age, we're like a year apart and we've, we fought and bickered constantly as little kids. And the thing that I hated the most that still makes my skin crawl to this day is if we got in a fight and my parents made us hug each other. It was like the least genuine thing in the whole world. If you're trying to reconcile two people who are angry and upset, forcing them to hug each other is not ever gonna do Like, Please don't do that to your children. Like, maybe ask them, hey, you, you know, are you feeling are you feeling like you want to make up? Are you feeling like maybe you'd want to give your brother or your sister a hug and show them you love them? Like, maybe that. If it, you let it be an option. But my parents would literally be like, you thought, all right, now give each other a hug right now. And I would just be like, I want to shoot myself because I don't want to hug this person who has just done something to really, really upset me and make me feel terrible. Um, that's how it felt. That being, you know, somebody forcing my brother to give me a hug after he's been horrible to me. That's how it felt for the mission board to tell this child molester that in order to truly be sorry and to show his repentance, he had to write me a letter of apology. Seriously, like when I tell you that your abuser is never gonna say what you want him to say or her to say, she's never gonna act how you want her to act, and you're never going to feel the way that you want to feel. After you hear back from your abuser once you've confronted them. Like when I say that, all of that is kind of culminated in this letter from my abuser. I was so angry that he sent it because I hadn't wanted to hear from him. I did not want to hear from him. I just wasn't ready. You know, maybe at some point in my life I would be. I still can't imagine what time that would be. I just have no interest in hearing from the person who did what he did to me. I can forgive you from a distance. That's what I did when I was younger. You know, I can move on with my life from a distance. I don't really want to have any kind of interaction with this person. I just don't. So the church forced him to write me this letter and not only did it make me angry because I didn't want to hear from him and I was being forced to hear from him, but the second part that made me angry was that his letter was just a giant load of BS. It was just garbage. And I remember reading it and just thinking, okay, he said like all the right things In general, I guess, if you want to tick some spirituality boxes, like, oh, please forgive me. Um, All I want to do is serve the Lord. I just want to spend the rest of my life serving the Lord. And so, you know, part of me felt guilty for rejecting this letter as being, like, not genuine. But the more I read over it, and actually some other people uh, read it as well, And I think that one of those people was uh, Jimmy Hinton from the Speaking Out on Sex Abuse podcast. And he does a lot of advocacy work. And he called it just like immediately. I'm one of those people that I'm like, okay, am I being gracious enough? And Jimmy's just like, yeah, that sucks. He's not repentant at all. (laughs) And like, it felt good to hear that. Not just because I wanted my feelings to be validated, but because I felt like something was off. And I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't the only person seeing it. So my abuser started his letter with, my dear friend kelly i just want to be like we're not dear friends we're not friends at all so we can stop that but i'm nitpicking at this point but the first like half of the letter everything that he said was an attempt to minimize what he had done he didn't overtly minimize it he didn't come out and say this really isn't that big of a deal you know that would have just been like a jerky thing to say and i would have known right away what was wrong with the letter but he did it in this like covert way like did I really do this to you all those years ago? I Did that really happen? It was like he was basically telling me it was so long ago, so long ago, that's minimizing the abuse and that he had trouble even remembering it, that he doesn't remember it. That's also minimizing the abuse. I'm like, oh, you don't remember the thing that kind of screwed up my life more than anything else that has ever happened to me? You don't remember that? That's fantastic. Um, These are ways of minimizing the abuse. So the first half of his letter was basically just that. Like, did I really do it? And then he's like, well, you know, I thought to myself and I prayed about it that you wouldn't forget something like that. So if you say it happened, then it happened. And it's just like, Are you freaking kidding me right now? I'm sorry, but there is no way that you do not remember the multiple instances where you sexually abused me, where you had to sneak around, sneak into my house, sneak into my bedroom, get me alone. Like there's no way that you don't remember those instances. It's either that you're lying and you're full of garbage or that you have so many victims that you can't be bothered to remember one of them. And it came out later that he had abused another um, missionary child. And so there's always a possibility. Maybe I just ran into the rest of them. He didn't get a chance to, I think, take the abuse to the place he wanted to take it because my family ended up moving not long after that. And I got to the point where I just would keep from being alone with him because I knew that was my only saving grace. That was my only safety. Stay away from this guy. Don't get caught alone with him. So at get-togethers for church and anything else, I would stick next to my parents, I would plant myself at the dining room table when he came to our house and I would not move from that central part of the house where lots of people were. But all that to say, His letter to me was basically just several paragraphs of him minimizing the abuse, trying to act like he didn't even remember it, and then the second half was, all I want to do is serve God. It's just so important to me. Basically, like, you need to drop this because I want to serve God, and if you keep talking about sexual abuse and me in the same sentences, then it could mess with my ability to continue to serve God. It was a very self-serving letter. It made me feel gross. I wanted to put the words back, but I couldn't because they were written literally. He hand wrote it in Indonesian, which is his first language, and somebody translated it in type into English, and I didn't want either one of those letters. Like, they both sucked, and one of the things that I did was to look at the letter in Indonesian to see if maybe the person translating had kind of missed some intent. Or, you know, sometimes when you're translating, you can be off by just a little bit. And some, Nope, not off at all. It was the exact same thing in both letters, a minimization of what he had done. So I share that story with you. Because like that therapist had told me, like, wow, it's so crazy that you have the opportunity to confront this person in real life. You know, most of us and I, she was a therapist for survivors of sexual abuse and she was a sexual abuse survivor herself. And so she had talked to many, many people and counseled many, many people, many of which did not have the opportunity to confront their abusers because they were no longer living when the healing process began or when they had the feeling like that they wanted to come forward and just really confront this person that had hurt them. That thing that some people would view as a, a privilege, I mean, privilege may be, Privilege may be the wrong word to use. I'm sure if I got out like a thesaurus, I could come up with a different word to describe it. But like the privilege of being able, like you have the opportunity, maybe that's better. You actually have the opportunity to confront your abuser if your abuser is still living. And for some people, it is something that's not possible. And so maybe that's you and you're thinking, I feel cheated that I I didn't get the opportunity to confront this person. But I will say this, that doesn't make it better that you didn't get to and it's another layer of healing that you're going to have to work through but I promise you this even if you had that opportunity it is probably not gonna feel the way that you want it to feel I will say that sometimes uh, when I see people confronting their abuser in court and able to just say what they want like and tell this person exactly what he or she did to them when I've seen that I felt like that must be like a super empowering thing, like to be able to just stand there, look your abuser in the eye and take back your power. That to me seems like one of the situations where maybe you would walk away from it feeling like, okay, the thing that I was hoping would happen actually happened. But I also think that even if your abuser might be receiving justice from the law or you're able to confront and say exactly what it is that you want to say in the exact words you want to say it, I have a feeling that at the end of it, there is still going to be a part of you that may be disappointed. And again, I don't say this to discourage anyone from confronting their abuser. That's not what this is about. I think it's more about going in with both your eyes open, that you may have the opportunity to say every single word that you've been longing to say for years to your abuser. You may say it so perfectly, not stumble over your words. You might be the strongest person on earth and just look like a flat-out warrior while you're doing it. You may feel empowered while you're doing it. And those are all good things. Like, that's a really good thing, to to have that moment where you take back your power and you're able to confront what happened to you. That's an awesome thing. But I think that when you walk away, you're not ever going to be 100% satisfied with what you said Or even if you are satisfied with what you said, you're probably never going to be 100% satisfied with how that person responded. And I think of the Larry Nassar case, which I've been talking about in the last few episodes um, since the documentary came out, Athlete A on Netflix, which I recommend that you watch if you can. Even for those what was it, like 175 women that got to stand in court and face their abuser and say every last word they wanted to say to him, speeches they had written out and maybe had been honing for years, these powerful, powerful moments. And you see the response of Larry Nasser. You see the way he acted, the way he whined and complained to the judge and was just a giant infant and just an all-around crappy human being. There was not any semblance of remorse. There wasn't any like, I've destroyed people and I deserve whatever they throw at me. It was all a selfish, self-centered, me, me, me kind of a reaction from Larry Nasser. And I think that when it comes to abusers, something I said earlier in this podcast is that you being abused was never about you. It's always about your abuser. It's their desire to abuse, their desire to exert power and control over another human being. That is what the abuse is always about. And what sucks about that when you really think about it is that we're the ones that get to live out the consequences. It's not about us at all, but we're the ones that have to live with it for the rest of our lives. Because an abuser like that, a predator like that, that's going after people to exert this power and control over them, the chances they're ever gonna be remorseful for that, like truly, truly remorseful for what they've done, are very slim. There's just a very, very slim chance that you're ever going to get that out of a predator. So while your abuse was not about you, it was about your abuser, if you make that decision to confront your abuser, it always has to be for you. It has to be for empowering yourself, for finding your voice, for part of your healing that is not dependent on the reaction of your abuser. Because if it's dependent, if any part of that story is dependent on what they say or do or how they act, how they respond to you, I think that we're going to be disappointed every single time. Again, I can't speak for people who get to stand up in court and have their say and watch their abuser get taken behind bars for the rest of their lives. Like I can't say what that feels like, that kind of a confrontation, but I do know that even those people who get to see their abuser punished, even those people are still dealing with the consequences of having been sexually abused. And while I think that confronting your abuser can be a huge part of the healing process, that confrontation is unfortunately not going to change everything that's ever happened to us because we were abused. And I think that that's a reality that some of us struggle with. And it would be great. You know, it would be great if I had written those emails and I had said, This is what happened to me. This is what this person did. You have to do something to stop him from doing this to other people. I wish that those letters had empowered me to the point where it just healed me from everything that happened to me as a kid. But here to tell you, and it's not to discourage you. There's a fine line, I think, because with this podcast, I want to be honest. I don't want to sugarcoat everything and just be positive thinking and motivational speaking and you got this. And I believe all those things. Like there's vast healing. There's so much healing that we can look forward to in our lives as survivors of sexual abuse. But I will say this confronting your abuser or confronting your abuse, unfortunately, does not erase that abuse. It doesn't erase it. So there are still things that we're going to have to work through. We're still going to have bad days sometimes. There are still going to be things that we struggle with that we really wish that we didn't. You know, just listening to people reading comments on Facebook and and hearing things that people share and it's like we have these random struggles. Like people who are sexually abused deal with some of the things you don't even think about people having to deal with that, that are just harder for a survivor of sexual abuse. All those things don't just magically go away because we have our day in court. They don't magically go away because we confronted our abuser. And in fact, sometimes we might feel worse. Like in my situation, no, I didn't confront him personally. I didn't send him a letter. But that stupid letter that I got from him made it worse. It didn't make me feel better. It didn't make me feel more healed and more empowered. It made me wanna punch people, him and the people who stinking made him send that letter to me because I didn't want it. I didn't want a forced apology, just like I didn't want hugs from my siblings who were being jerk faces to me when I was a kid. I don't want an apology that a pastor told you you had to write to prove to him that you were repentant so you could you know, not go to prison or keep your job or whatever it is that you wanna do. The apology I got from my abuser made me feel worse, and I think that that might be the case for more survivors than you would think. And I think one of the reasons is because it's this huge event that happened in our lives. It's affected us so deeply and so greatly. And the person who did it to us, it's kind of like they look at us like, seriously, like what's, what's the problem? Because it was never about us for them. It was always about them. So while your abuser is what the abuse has always been about, you confronting the abuser, unfortunately, has to be just for you, by you, and about you. Because honestly, I don't think there's anything they can say. Like, I don't think there's anything that Jerry could have said to me in his letter. I don't think there's anything that he could have said to me if he hadn't been forced that would have made me feel any better. The only thing that I think would make me feel better is, here's a list of all of the girls that I've done this to, and here's my confession, and I'm going to send this to the police. Maybe that. But I don't think there was any apology that was going to make me feel better. And so I think that that's something that we have to be careful about when it comes to confronting the people who have abused us. Whatever it is that we're looking for in our healing is not coming from our abuser. And it might seem strange to say that, like, okay, obviously it's not coming from our abuser, but really when you think about it, they're the person that abused you. They're wrapped up in your story. You know, whoever it is, that's the person that, that has been wrapped up in this story of abuse and this journey of healing. It's They're there whether you want them to be there or not. But the reality for survivors of sexual abuse is that no part of our healing can be dependent on the person that abused us because they're not trustworthy. They're not trustworthy. Nothing that they can say or do can change what they decided to do to us when they sexually abused us and changed our lives forever. So that's the thing I wanted to share today on the podcast. Um, It's actually not meant at all to discourage you from confronting your abuser, and, and maybe we'll have an episode where I talk about different strategies for confronting or ways that you can confront your abuser, and I'd love to hear any of your thoughts in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. But today, I wanted to talk more about what we talked about, and that is the decision to confront your abuser, even if you are, I don't want to say lucky enough. It, it sound, I don't like using positive words like lucky or privileged when I'm talking about you know, confronting our abuser. But if it's something that's important to you and that is going to make you feel empowered just to be able to get it off your chest – Then yeah, I hope you're able to do it. I hope your abuser is still among the living, but I think that we just have to manage our expectations when it comes to that confrontation. Because I'm super melodramatic, so like I could sit and like fantasize about you know these words I'm gonna say, and like everything's just gonna be this perfect speech, and it's just gonna be like daggers directly into my abuser's heart. And then like you know it's like expectation versus reality. The reality is never going to feel the way that you think that it should when you're planning for it. The sexual predator who like broke you is not going to be the person that is going to respond beautifully and perfectly the exact way that you build up in your mind that they should respond or react to your confrontation. So just some tips for managing those expectations. Confrontation is always for you. It's always about you. It's about your healing, it's about finding your voice, it's about taking back your power, and it's so much less about the person who abused you. I think that as long as we keep that in the forefront of our minds, and we acknowledge that we're probably never gonna get what we want from the person who abused us, because let's be real, let's just reality check. What we want from our abusers is to never have been abused. And it's not something we're ever gonna get and that sucks, but I think that that's the reality. That's the reality. What we want is for it to all be made better somehow, but the only way it could be made better is if we could invent a time machine, go back in time, and the predator that abused us would not be an abusive person. Unfortunately, that's not the reality that we live in, and sometimes I think we need that kind of reality check when it comes to thinking about our abusers or thinking about confronting them or saying whatever, And again, this is not a discouragement at all. I think it's an awesome part of the healing process for so many people where you can take back your power. You can say what's been on your heart and on your mind. It's just about managing those expectations. And when it comes to having expectations of the person who sexually abused you, my advice to you is have none. Literally have the lowest (laughs) expectations possible because these people live to satisfy their own need for power and control and to exert that power and control over innocent, vulnerable people whose lives they don't give a crap about. Because newsflash, if they gave a crap about them, they wouldn't do what they're doing to them. They wouldn't have done it. So we can continue this conversation on Facebook. Survivor Sanctuary is the group. Search it on Facebook. Answer the very easy to answer question, which is what is the main topic of conversation on Survivor Sanctuary. It's sexual abuse. So many people think it's animals. It's not. I would like to know who these animals are, and I'm going to find it out. But um, I have started deleting those requests that mention animals. I love them. Animals are amazing. Not what this podcast is about. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm honored each and every play and download of the podcast. It is awesome that you're listening, and I'd love to have you. On the Facebook page as well. Real quick before we go, you can also support the podcast if you want to keep the Survivor Sanctuary podcast coming to you and uh, keep having this free content. Well, you can become a monthly supporter of the podcast if you want to do that, anchor.fm slash Survivor Sanctuary, and you can click on contribute and you can become a monthly supporter of the podcast. Well, I will catch you back here next time on another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast.